I hope the my book showcases some of that unglamorous activist labor and thinks about archives as fundamental to kind of act up's work in ways, right, that bring at least a different light onto a group that even gets this kind of disproportionate share of attention. The kind of arc of the book is part of the kind of argument for the ongoing investment of paying attention to AIDS as present and future as much as past. Viral Cultures is the first book to critically examine the archives that have helped preserve and create the legacy of existing scholarship on AIDS activism of the 1980s and 1990s. Drawing on large institutional archives such as the New York Public Library and other archives developed by small, community-based organizations, this work of archival ethnography details how contemporary activists, artists, and curators use these records to build on the cultural legacy of AIDS activism to challenge the conditions of injustice that continue to undergird current AIDS crises. Positioning vital nostalgia as both a critical faculty and a generative practice, this book explores the act of saving this activist past and reanimating it in the digital age. Today, author Marika Sifor is joined in conversation by Ted Kerr, K.J. Rawson, and Kate McKinney. Hi, uh, I'm Marika Sifor. I'm an assistant professor in the Information School and an adjunct um, assistant professor in Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Washington. And I am located in Seattle and the University of Washington. And I want to acknowledge the Coast Salish peoples of this land, the land which touches the shared waters of all tribes and bands within the Duwamish, Puyallup, Suquamish, Tulalip, and Muckleshoot nations. Uh, and it's my great pleasure and privilege uh, to be here and to be in conversation with some of my very favorite colleagues and collaborators today about my book, Viral Cultures, Activist Archiving in the Age of AIDS, which feels very surreal to even say it uh, exists. Uh, I think it started to feel a bit more real when it got a cover uh, and now that I've seen proofs. Um, but it still feels in some ways hard to believe that uh, a book actually exists, um, especially one that feels like it's been so long in the making. This research began in 2015, um, and I've been just so incredibly lucky to have become a part of these kinds of archives and the worlds and constellations that grow around them. And I'm so excited today to be thinking a bit more about AIDS archives, uh, about these particular archives at the center of my project in particular, and about their kind of larger relationships to LGBTQ and to AIDS historiographies. I just feel incredibly fortunate to be here in this virtual room with three of my favorite thinkers about AIDS and archives. So I guess I'll jump in next. My name is KJ Rawson. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm an associate professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Northeastern University. I live and work in Boston and central Massachusetts, which is on the land of the Wampanoag, the Massachusetts, and the Nipmunk people. And I also direct the Digital Transgender Archive, and I co-chair the board for the Homosaurus, which is an international LGBTQ plus linked data vocabulary. And it's through that project that I had a chance to first meet Marika, and uh, we've been working closely together since then. Uh, but I've been a longtime admirer of her scholarship and her work uh, and her brilliance. And so I was so enthusiastic to get a chance uh, to read this book and to participate in this conversation. Ted, maybe I'll pass it off to you. Thank you so much. My name is Ted Kerr. I live in Brooklyn, although you will hear my Canadian accent. Um, I am on Lenape land, and I use he, him, his pronouns. I am a writer and an artist and a teacher at the New School. I'm a founding member of uh, the collective What Would an HIV Doula Do? And with my friend and writing partner, Alexandra Yuaz, we have a book coming out in a few months called um, We're Having This Conversation Now, The Cultural Times of AIDS. And all of those things that I just mentioned are why I think I'm here. I got to 
meet uh, Marika in person for the first time in a coffee shop on 12th Street in Manhattan. We got to gossip about and we got to talk about AIDS archives and intergenerational conversations. So I'm really excited to be a part of today. And um, I will throw this to Kate. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kate McKinney. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University um, in Vancouver. I also have a Canadian accent, um, and I am located on the um, unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam. I work on media histories. I do media histories of um, LGBTQ activists, and I look at the ways that activists took up internet technologies in the 80s and 90s, so focus a lot on AIDS activists in that work. And I met Marika back when we were both in grad school and have been so thrilled to follow this project um, up until this point and to um, talk about connections between our work and to collaborate. So it's a real pleasure to be here with you, Marika and Ted and KJ, to, to talk more about this wonderful book. So I think I'm actually going to get us started by bringing us to a particular passage in the book. I want to actually start us off fairly early, partway through the introduction. The passage that I chose to bring to our attention, uh, it's about the midway point of the introduction, Marika, where you're really starting to explain the concept of vital nostalgia and offer the theoretical framework that then will inform the rest of the book. So I'm just going to read about a paragraph. It's a slightly long paragraph that explains what this concept is. So you say, vital nostalgia, the analytic I develop in this book, names a process of questioning, contending with, and redressing power inequities that continually subject minoritized people to harm and violence that is grounded in a critical activation of a yearning for a pastime and the people who occupied it. This nostalgia is vital in multiple senses. It is a vigorous, energetic force that is animate and changeable. It is fundamentally concerned with maintenance and continuance of life in living beings. It pertains to the recording of pertinent data about human lives. Vital nostalgia encompasses the complicated process of critical interrogation of our present through ongoing relation to the past. This is a nostalgia that emphasizes the longing for the past while also attending to and illuminating the ambivalences, violences, and complexities of that past that continue to dictate life chances. The temporal and effective drag of holding tightly onto the past in such a vital nostalgic practice is about a generative political potentiality for feeling, imagining, and enacting a just and livable now and a more vibrant future. So first, I just love that passage. I think it's a good example of the beauty and brilliance of your writing. But it also evokes for me a, a bigger question about this important concept that you develop and how much you hope that it travels or whether you think that there is some importance in keeping it specifically tied to HIV and AIDS activism and archives. Thank you so much for that selection. It's incredibly surreal to hear someone read uh, your words aloud. And I'm, I just feel incredibly honored to be here and to hear that it resonated with you and your thinking. I didn't intend to do a project about nostalgia necessarily. This work developed from a kind of graduate school rabbit hole fall down um, thinking about affect and theorizations of affect and archives. And I really thought at the beginning of this project that it would take some kind of inspiration from work like Sarah Ahmed's Cultural Politics of Emotion, and then it might look at particular affects in particular archives. And it wasn't even intended to be a project about AIDS at its start, um, but rather one about queer archives and affect. And I was fortunate enough to have kind of exploratory funding to do some archival work and to begin having conversations with some of the folks who ended up in this book uh, and realized, of course, as is the way with research projects, I think that there was much more to say about one of these kind of archives than probably one book can even capture and that it was going to do kind of grave injustice to jump around and that this wasn't really even a project about different ethics 
As much as for me, I think nostalgia is such an interesting concept because it is about affect and emotion, but it's also about memory, which is, again, something I think that comes up a lot in archival thinking, um, which is, of course, the space I come from. Uh, and affect kind of as this project began, including through my own work, was beginning to kind of have a bigger kind of space in thinking about archives. But actually, very surprisingly to me, there was work that I could find thinking about nostalgia and museums and exhibitions and memorials and other kinds of memory practices and sites and spaces, but very little that dealt with archives and nostalgia. Though I do think that archives are fundamentally embedded in these kind of practices of nostalgia. And AIDS archives, I think, deal with a particular kind of nostalgia. But I actually think all archives might have um, possibly kinds of nostalgic relationships uh, that can be kind of born of encounters with them or that are kind of embedded in their even stories of existence or in which they're kind of parts of these kinds of narratives. But I think AIDS for me does have something particular in thinking about nostalgia, right? Some of the work I get to address in the book, work like Vincent Chevalier and Ian Bradley Perrin's poster, Your Nostalgia is Killing Me from 2013, of course, explicitly deals with nostalgia. But I think even some of the kind of artists and activists and archivists and librarians and curators who are less explicit about nostalgia are still kind of contending with these narratives that are about nostalgia. And we're at this interesting moment in the kind of historicization of AIDS that Avram Finkelstein and others in my project, uh, including Ted, right, talk about kind of why we're at this particular juncture. And I think nostalgia in relation to AIDS also seems significant because AIDS seems like such a strange object for nostalgia in certain ways, right? Like who wants to relive mass death and devastation and pain and suffering? But at the same time, right, all of these beautiful things that AIDS seems to have given rise to, right, whether they actually existed or whether we imagine them to exist, are very alluring. And I think particularly alluring in ways that are generationally specific and maybe even within generations tied to kind of our own relationships to AIDS activist practices and to AIDS art making and to AIDS archives. So kind of thinking back to your bigger question, I don't think vital nostalgia is necessarily specific to AIDS archives, but I think there are lines of nostalgia here that are particularly obvious and in need of exploration when we're thinking about AIDS. But I'd be very curious to know how this concept might apply to other kinds of archival thinking. And uh, much of my other work, right, looks particularly at queer or at LGBTQ plus archives in other ways. Thinking about what nostalgia might look like in those spheres and what a vital nostalgia looks like in those spheres. I've written uh, not nearly as much as KJ has, but a bit about trans archives and just thinking about others' work, uh, including Wade Hill Melatinos on trans care and others, what might a kind of nostalgia look like in a different space in a trans archive? And what might a vital nostalgia, right, when we think about the importance of bodies and archives uh, look like? Think in feminist kind of archiving practice as well. I hope that vital nostalgia is a kind of concept that others can think through and think about where it might be generative or productive to their work, particularly with archives. I think the document might be a fruitful tool. Uh, but of course, like all tools that are developed kind of in a specific context, I'd also be very curious to know kind of where the limits of that line of thinking are when it's kind of moved outside of the specificity of AIDS archiving. I'm going to jump in and respond to that really generous question that KJ offered and then that really beautiful and rich response. And to me, the when you say vital nostalgia, the word vital is so important there, right? It really speaks about survival or survivability. That's what hinges there for me. And even in your response, you asked, who wants to relive mass death and suffering? And for me in my work, I think the answer is people who see even amid all the suffering, who see hope in what happened at that time, right? I think part of the nostalgia trip is that it's a time in history where queers are understood to have fought back and won. And we can debate what winning means, 
but I think that's at the hook of this. I think vital nostalgia will be helpful to communities who are trying to make sense of a history that is uneven, times of mass response and times of silence. What's interesting for me personally is your book picks up right where I understood that the major tension that I had in my work was I was born in 1979 and I was born within a community of people who wanted to talk about AIDS in the past and I wanted to talk about AIDS in the present. And so that is an interesting tension when it comes to vital nostalgia as well. It's like, what is the role of nostalgia moving forward? And I think that's something that um, your book offers. Yeah, and I think nostalgia too is such a fruitful concept because I think archives are often read as exclusively past looking rather than as something that has contemporary import and that has these kind of future implications. And so for me, nostalgia is always fundamentally about what's going on in our present and what kinds of future possibilities we might have. And so I think it's also for me a way of reframing those conversations and thinking about AIDS and archiving as contemporary and as right having these kind of ongoing implications as we continue to kind of live in these multiple AIDS crises as once, right? And in these conjunctions of crises, right? Not just AIDS, but structural racism, COVID-19, the intersection of all of these different kinds of crises and violences that come together uh, when we talk about AIDS. This is so interesting to hear everyone reflect on this vital nostalgia concept that really kind of is the thread that runs through the whole book. You mentioned this a little bit, Marika, a few moments ago, but for me, what's so powerful about the vital nostalgia concept is like the way that it brings in questions of livingness and of illness and of bodies into the concept of nostalgia, but also into archives. I don't think a lot about nostalgia because I think I was trained in a cultural studies framework where like nostalgia is sort of this like bad object. Um, and so for me, your book is like, I think, a chance to kind of return to my own book and work and think about like, oh, well, how how is nostalgia at play in these community archiving practices? I wonder if you can talk a bit about how this concept helps you to think about bodies and illness and disability and how it's like animated. I think a lot of your work, even beyond this book, like you have this great article in TSQ in 2015, that's about like finding a person's hair in an archives. How does this focus on the body and on labor and on bodies and their difference help us to think about and and understand activist archiving? Thank you for that, Kate. I think, well, I mean, I'm always interested in things with many of the kinds of queer theorizations we draw on, right? I'm always interested in bad feelings and how bad feelings come into play. And I think nostalgia is such an interesting thing that way, right? As it's really been dismissed and derided as this kind of rosy colored look back, right? Rather than something that can do something productive and generative and something right, that isn't just kind of politically regressive. I think we can see all the dangers of kinds of nostalgia that are not critical or reflective or vital, right? And so the lines between good and I don't know. I'm always like interested too in those queer theoretical ways, right? In which we can kind of disrupt those kinds of like binary notions, right? Of what's good and bad and a feeling in our relationships to AIDS histories and queer histories and other kinds of marginalized and minoritized histories. All of my work is fundamentally in the kind of archival world about thinking about things that are difficult to capture, but that seem kind of fundamental to existence. So I think in the context of queer archives, debatably, right, what makes us queer is kind of affective orientations towards other people and kind of embodied relationships. And yet those are so fundamentally difficult to capture, right? What would an archive that kind of even contains those things look like? And I'm always interested in our kinds of, I think, Kate, you and I have this in common in our work, what our kinds of encounters with different kinds of objects provoke. And that always comes from a particularly kind of situated embodiment. And so all of my work, right, is fundamentally about these like things that just are difficult and nagging uh, to capture in archives or that are provoked by archives. And so nostalgia is one way to get at that. And I think 
in distinct but parallel ways to what I was saying about LGBTQ archives, I think AIDS right is fundamentally for many people an embodied experience, right? And so again, talking about bodies really matters. What felt to me like it was missing from some prior theorizations of nostalgia is this really rich literature that looks at it in relation to place and space and in relation to conceptions of time and temporality, but not so much that looks at it as fundamentally about bodies and people and about the missing people that we're longing for. Those things are, of course, embedded in thinking about notions of home and other kinds of longing for lost places and times. But I really wanted to bring this back to thinking about people and bodies and embodied experiences. And I think, too, I'm always hoping from my archival studies standpoint to get us thinking about the kinds of bodies and labor and I think your work and mine, again, have this in common, Kate, the, the kinds of bodies and labor that go into actually doing archival work, into doing information work. As I think scholars sometimes encounter these archives without thinking about the stories, about how they got there, those stories so much shape what's there, what's missing, the kinds of interpretations that we make from it the kinds of exhibitions and outreach and engagement that happens. Uh, and I mean, it's just a great deal of work. And I think Deborah Levine, who was an active activist and is a performance theorist, talked so beautifully about how you could follow the lines in our interview of who loved whom to thinking about where archives actually are, right? Especially those archives that continue to live outside of institutions, right? She knew who had whose records because she knew who loved whom. There's these fundamental stories about bodies and feelings and the intersection of those things that need attention and care. And I think that's fundamental to what nostalgia can help us to do is to kind of move that thinking about bodies and labor and feelings back into the center of our archival engagements. Um, You're setting me up beautifully for a passage that I want to read from your book that really entertains labor but maybe from a slightly different point of view. So I'm going to read um, a little bit further in the book, not much, for those following along at home, page 44. The profound, vital, nostalgic longing for ACT UP that is shaped by the group's archival representation reflects a desire to contest, disrupt, and refigure the political status quo. Nostalgia for ACT UP as practiced across generations is produced in significant part by prevailing dissatisfaction with the intertwined politics of mainstream LGBTQ and AIDS movements. ACT UP nostalgia centers around three idealized facets of the group's practice and impacts, community unity, queer politics, and provocative aesthetics. Each of these facets is counter to the neoliberal assimilationist goals and practices that dominate mainstream LGBTQ and organized, political and organizations and the nonprofit industrial complex that constitutes a contemporary AIDS response. So I wanted to read that part because so much of my life is encountering people who are very excited about AIDS history through their initial interaction with ACT UP. And it is such a a moving and frustrating experience for me sometimes to parse through what does a desire to connect across time with the ongoing practice of ACT UP mean. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to us about these different roles that you're playing in the book as archivist, as demystifier, as reporter, as referee, as unpacker, because I think you do such a good job there, but you do it throughout. And maybe specifically, how do you wear all those hats while also maintaining the live wire of AIDS activism throughout the 20th and 21st century? That's a loaded bunch of questions for you. I'm trying to do justice to that, uh, Ted. And I think the answer is imperfectly, but I think my favorite part of research is and has always been the part right where you just get to kind of revel in the generosity and the stories of the people who are kind enough to share the work and the things they care so deeply about with you 
And I think especially in this context, and I know some of your work has addressed this, Ted, and some of your work with Alex as well. But I think there's things here that people needed to say, right? Like they needed space to kind of process and listen and someone to listen to these kinds of stories is I think there's kind of so much interest and attention to things like ACT UP. But at the same time, there's people are still dealing with these kinds of feelings and experiences and things that they are processing in fundamental ways. And I think people needed different things from me. And this is always true, right? And doing kind of qualitative interviewing work, right? Is that people need to share certain things with you. And I think it's interesting to write a book about archives, primarily interviewing people who are not professional. I interviewed some professional archivists and librarians, but most of the people I interviewed, uh, I don't think would consider themselves that. And so, right, they wanted to tell me all kinds of fascinating and interesting stories, many of them about art and experience and things that didn't make it into my book because they're not about archives per se or about AIDS historicization. But I think part of my goal always in being an interviewer is to rate of allowing people to kind of have the space they need to share the stories that they want and to do that kind of processing. And I think one of the most kind of moving interviewing experiences for me was with David Hirsch, uh, who was one of the co-founders with Frank Moore of Visual Aids Archive Project, uh, which is, of course, then tied to the Artist Plus Registry, their digital kind of counterpart. Uh, And when I first began this project, I had wanted to interview David, but I had looked around for him. Um, Alex Fialho, who was at Visual Aids at the time, looked around for him and kind of no one knew where he'd been since his involvement with the project kind of ended in the late 90s. But Eric Rain, uh, one of the other artists I had the privilege to interview and who was also involved in the early days of the archive project and is, who still has a really strong relationship to visual aids, found him. Uh, Not for me specifically, but for a few years later, and I was just privileged, especially, I think, some people I interviewed once, right, briefly, um, but other people like David, right, we spent months and months kind of talking on the phone, and I think he needed uh, the kind of conversations we had to happen kind of slowly, and he needed space and time to process things between them. He sent me things. He circled back to things uh, each conversation. And I think fundamentally, those are the kind of most beautiful moments of doing this kind of work is like when someone offers you a piece of their life story and allows you to kind of like enter their world. And I think that's fundamentally kind of what's beautiful and difficult about doing this kind of work, right? Is allowing people the space they need about navigating the differing kinds of narratives that people bring to this work, right? As I think people who were and are involved in AIDS activism, right, often One of the wonderful things about it is that people have very strong feelings and very strong narratives that they want to share, but those narratives do not always align and they do not always align with the kinds of stories one wants to tell. And so I think there's lots of careful navigation and particularly careful navigation when it comes to thinking about nostalgia, right? Is this is a concept that not everyone embraces in the kind of context of AIDS, right? And I think people have seen it do certain kinds of damage, right? And might be resistant to its kind of reclamation and not always, right? And sometimes for very good reasons. But I think that's part of what's fundamentally like exciting and challenging about doing this kind of work is navigating these different kinds of narratives and experiences. I had some resistance to writing a book about New York and about AIDS in New York and about ACT UP, right? Because there is so much attention as Alex Yuhas and others have kind of written critically about. But at the same time, it seemed impossible not to in the way in which these kinds of narratives are being navigated fundamentally shapes the entire narrative of AIDS. And I think you could write an equally interesting book about AIDS archives, and I hope someone does, about AIDS archives in LA and Minneapolis and perhaps document rural and other kinds of experiences. But fundamentally, this book felt like it needed 
to happen here because we needed to navigate these kinds of like dominant narratives and act up as at the center of those. Even the kind of story of act out is often very selective, right? It focuses on particular kinds of work. And I think that's where work like Kate's is so important, right? That highlights the kind of information activism that queer people are doing, right? The kind of unglamorous labors of activism. And I hope that my book also kind of showcases some of that unglamorous activist labor and thinks about archives as fundamental to kind of act ups work or to least to some folks in act ups work in ways right that bring at least a different light onto a group that even gets this kind of disproportionate share of attention. Yeah, I was just going to ask what I think will be a quick follow-up question to that. <laughs> Maybe not. But I appreciated that Ted asked that question because it gave you an opportunity to talk more about your methods and methodologies, which you do beautifully weave throughout the book, right? So there's no just like standalone moment where you're like, here's how I did this study. Um, and I think it's exemplary in the ways that you bring it in and really pull it forward in particular moments. As you were talking about it, it struck me that it was almost a model for a vital nostalgia, actually, in the ways that you are supporting conversations, even as you are creating the book. But it also reminded me of your other work and thinking about the ethics of care in archiving. I wanted to open up space to ask you what intervention you think this book might be making within the archival profession writ large and the ways that we approach these really compelling and sometimes contentious collections and collecting practices and actors. And, you know, it sort of opens up a lot of questions. It's a misleadingly large question, I know. Um, but I have a sense that you probably have an idea that you may not have articulated here, but that this book is trying to continue some of your other work, which is trying to center community-based archival practices and think more about the ways that they are kind of pushing back at the everyday archiving work and archival field as a profession. KJ, thank you for that. I think part of what interested me is, right, this kind of relationship between, there's really three archives at the center of this story, right, the New York Public Library, NYU's Fales Library and Special Collections, and particularly the Downtown Collection, and Visual Aids, right, on the AIDS Archive Project. Part of what fundamentally interests me, right, those respectively are a large public library, a private academic institution, and a community-based arts organization. And so I'm always interested in where community archives like push up against and kind of live within institutions uh, and where institutions and community archives kind of meet and converge and where the practices kind of blend or run up against one another or fundamentally kind of challenge one another. And so for me, that is kind of part of the story too, is the relationships kind of formal and informal between these different kinds of archives. And I think to this book speaks to complex questions that there are no easy answers, though everyone wishes there were, about where certain archives belong. Are they better served in major institutions that might have never enough but more resources for them? Or are they better served kind of in community-based and community-driven and community-run spaces, right, that often have like resource-deprived spectrum of the archival world, even less resources, right? But have these advantages of kind of nimbleness of collecting, like I talk about with the archive project, where right, these collections are prioritized and where they might be more accessible to people who don't feel comfortable or are unwelcome in kind of major institutional spaces. But at the same time, maybe then more difficult for folks uh, like me who are academic researchers who are used to navigating those kinds of spaces and perhaps unused to navigating community spaces. And so I think this book kind of navigates that tension, right? And there are interesting things to say, particularly, and I think this is another tension we can talk more about. I've talked about this elsewhere in relation to kind of LGBT archives, right? And lots of them kind of began as community collections, and many of them have become part of major institutions, academic and otherwise, or, right, have these kinds of interesting partnerships. But I think also what's at play here for kind of 
my library and archives colleagues. I mean, this book and all of my work are, I hope, in a paradigm where we're shifting beyond notions of neutrality or objectivity. I hope that archivists kind of take away from this thinking critically about the kind of interpretive roles we play when it comes to doing particularly kind of outreach programming exhibition the way we showcase these materials was one of my entry points to this project is there are equally interesting aids archives elsewhere but there hadn't been equally interesting things done with them uh, at least in 2015 and 2016, when this project began, there were other archives doing related kinds of collections, doing programming, but none of them had done anything so extensive. And I think that's fundamentally part of what's so interesting to me about this story is the kind of really active role that archivists and curators are taking in navigating these collections and interpreting these collections through exhibitions and other kinds of programming, through inviting other people in to engage with them and to activate them and animate them in really exciting and powerful ways. There's a kind of statement about the role of archivists and librarians, and there's statements about the ways in which right, we navigate our relationships to the communities whose records we might hold or might engage with and how we might do that. And so I'm hoping that my readers who are librarians and archivists, both kind of professionally trained and community and everywhere in between might take some thoughts about kind of how to ethically navigate those kinds of relationships uh, with one another, but also with the people whose lives are implicated in our records. And that, I think, speaks to some of the work I've done with Michelle Caswell and others in thinking about ethics of care and particularly how those play out in relationships where there are disparate kinds of power at play uh, in the archives. Coming back a bit uh, to the quote Ted shows, which is about act up nostalgia and um, uh, KJ's question about methods. I think like for me, these first two chapters about ACT UP, they tell these sort of acrimonious stories about conflict and how this organization is remembered or how it entered the archives at the NYPL. But these are like stories I've heard before and I've heard them before as like gossip uh, or online, right? In the time that they were happening. Um, but you sort of navigate that acrimony and I think what were probably very hard feelings in some of those incidents through these interviews and you record the story of these archives and the sort of emotion that goes into assembling them. And that's not stuff that necessarily people in 50 years would get out of looking at these papers, right? Or documentation of these exhibits. So there's like, for you as the sort of scholar doing this history, there's, I think, probably in those interviews, like a ton of emotional labor of navigating these debates, like Maxine Wolf and Stephen Shapiro, and who you mentioned having this sort of reliving this discussion about where should the ACT UP archives go. Like, I think probably in some ways they're still a bit salty about that. Like that's a living sort of debate that shapes the activism that people in New York of that generation still do, right? And I just want to say you do that, you do that so well in the book. But I guess my, my question, and this is a question that actually Ted thought up when we were planning for this talk, is more one about like where records go to live out their days. Um, and it's a question about categorization. So like, what does it mean that ACT UP's archives are sort of framed as being a part of a gay and lesbian collection. And, and I said gay and lesbian and not LGBTQ very specifically. And like, what, what, what would it mean to classify AIDS archives in other ways? Like what kind of stories are sort of occluded through that, that classification, that framing? And how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really important tension. And right then there's a bigger tension in the context of AIDS, right? Because AIDS with American context, it's so fundamentally entangled with gay and lesbian history and with LGBTQ history, right? And I appreciate your kind of attention to like the intricacies and differences between those, right? And I think, right, we're talking about kind of the movement of ACT UP's archive in the early to mid-90s, right? And so we're at a moment in which like queer studies is emerging in part of this conversation. Uh, but really, we're still like fundamentally talking about kind of gay and lesbian archives, right? And 
the tensions that they're navigating in this moment rate are really about, even you can see it kind of reflected in the names of where even these collections might go. Also in the people you've highlighted, right, I think Maxine Wolf and Stephen Shapiro in particular, right, play really big roles in this story of where ACT UP's archives go. And so little of that, you're right, is captured in the kinds of at least publicly accessible documents, right? When you look at a finding aid, there's a short statement about kind of provenance, but it often just lists kind of when the records were donated and um, by whom. And then you get into like, you know, some other kinds of administrative information about when they were processed and by whom, and if they were reprocessed and by whom, as ACT UP's records also have been reprocessed. You don't get the whole backstory. And I think for me, that's what I'm always hoping as an archival scholar to do is to tell the stories of the archive itself. I think there are lots of other books and films and exhibitions, right? They use these records, but not so many that actually tell the story of how those records came to be there. And I think those stories of how those records came to be there shapes fundamentally the kinds of stories that can be told with them. Uh, And those kinds of narratives, of course, right, have deep and ongoing implications for the people whose lives are kind of tied up in those records. So I think here in the context of AIDS, right, we're always navigating this tension between its kind of association with gay and lesbian history and with archives, right? I think gay and lesbian and queer and trans people, right, have played such a fundamental role in AIDS activism that there are real substantive relationships, right? Maxine Wolf has good reasons why she thinks her ACT UP papers belong at the Lesbian History Archive, right? She sees this AIDS history as lesbian history, right, and that that kind of connection is neglected. Just the same, Stephen Shapiro, right, uh, has good reasons why he thinks ACT UP history is New York history, is the history of activism, is not just kind of gay and lesbian history, and that it does a, a disservice to kind of be framed in that way. And there are kind of equally compelling and legitimate reasons, right, for this kind of history to be contextualized, at least kind of, again, in the caveat that we're talking about North America, right, in kind of gay and lesbian history, but it also isn't the same. Uh, AIDS history is particular, and it's not gay and lesbian history, and that can leave out these other kinds of narratives, right, about people who are not gay and lesbian, about people who have some other kind of identity that might live in tension, right? The book only kind of very briefly touches on, but I think like Julian DeMaio's work, right, with the Latino Caucus of ACT UP, really points to this, these ongoing tensions, right? Where does the Latino caucuses papers belong, right? Many of their papers are still in people's homes and attics and basements and closets under beds, right? And do those records, right? Would they be better served in a kind of Latinx focused institution? Do they belong in a gay and lesbian institution in the kind of absence of like AIDS-specific institutions for holding these records, where do they belong? And so I think these are ongoing tensions. And I, I think that there's reasons, right, that I, those are the kinds of reasons that I very specifically talk about AIDS archives, but it's also kind of impossible to talk about AIDS archives and not talk about LGBT archives. Um, and even if we think about the way in which the New York Public Library classifies these records, right, is as part of gay as like AIDS collections and gay and lesbian collections appear on a kind of list together, right? Because if you're looking for one, you might be looking for the other. Whereas right at the fails, they're contextualized as part of kind of art history, the history of art movements in the downtown scene. But that's also fundamentally a story of AIDS, but also maybe also a fundamentally important story of like queer history. And then you have visual aids, right, where the kind of organizing logic is around aids, right? And that, I think, is the exception. And I think they're one of the few places where that is the fundamental organizing logic. And Nelson Santos, I think, really beautifully, who was the executive director of visual aids, really beautifully described what using kind of HIV status as an organizing principle 
the way that opens up what their kind of collection can contain in really beautiful and powerful ways. So I think it's a tension that needs to be navigated, even thinking about where this book belongs, right? Like, does it belong in kind of LGBT studies? Is critical HIV studies a place that has enough to kind of contain it, right? Like, I think that's probably where it fundamentally lives, but like, where does all that work live? There is no conference where all of the like kind of critical HIV studies researchers gather, right? We appear at American Studies, we appear at National Women's Studies, we appear uh, for me at Information Studies conferences as well, right? So it's there is no kind of fundamental home. And so we're always kind of navigating this tension in this kind of scholarship and in these kinds of collections themselves. So in the last chapter of the book, you take all this work that you've been doing about AIDS archives that are made up of a lot of paper. And you take it sort of to the scene of the internet and social media platforms like Tumblr, um, RIP, uh, and the way that AIDS activists and artists engaged with HIV AIDS use those platforms to communicate. And you think about the connections between different ideas about virality and the viral. So we use the term viral and virality to talk about how information circulates online quickly and how it replicates in digital networks. Um, but this is a concept that comes out of and is inseparable from pandemic thinking past and present. Can you talk a little bit about how your book changes as it moves online and how these archives change as they move online? Uh, and what does the internet and digital networks mean for AIDS activists and, and artists working on and with HIV AIDS? Yeah, and I think that chapter especially is fundamentally indebted to uh, work you've done and work you've done uh, together with Dylan Mulvin on the interwoven uh, histories of AIDS and personal computing and the rise of personal computing in the 90s and the ways in which AIDS activists, right, have always used any kind of technology at their disposal to do this kind of work, right? And I think work you've done, Kate, right, has fundamentally like disrupted this idea that these activists were only doing kind of analog work, right? The kind of work that we think about when we think about ACT UP, right, is typically like these large demonstrations, these circulation of like wheat pasted posters, right? But thanks to your work and others, right, we know that AIDS activists were using newsletters, they were using BBS boards, they were using all sorts of technologies, right, to do this kind of work. And this book is in part the stories about kinds of technologies that AIDS activists use to do their work and what those mean for the kind of preservation and access to their records, right? In particular, right earlier in the book, I talk about video and the kind of ways in which video mediates our relationship to AIDS archives and the way in which fundamental changes in video technologies and editing technologies for video enable different kinds of documentation by activists. And so I think in a similar vein, I always hope to tell stories about technology that are both about the digital, but are about longer kinds of stories about technologies. And so, right, we have analog and digital technologies playing in here. But this is also the story about how these records circulate now. And I think a fundamental way that they do that, especially outside of the academy is in kind of digital spaces and telling the stories of these particular kinds of digital spaces like Tumblr play is so kind of fundamental to how AIDS activist work has been happening, especially how AIDS activist work might continue to happen in the future. And I think we always need to pay attention to the kinds of platforms and their particular affordances and what, how they shape and how activists kind of reshape those technologies to do the kind of work that they want to do. And I think this is also to the kind of larger questions about access to records. I think archivists are often very frustrated by the wish that everything could 
be digital or even the feasibility of everything becoming digital. And so this book also touches on some of the impossibility or perhaps undesirability of that kind of project or the kinds of ethical questions that might come from putting online records. But the chapter that you ask about in particular, right, looks at the ways in which um, through three artists' work, uh, they kind of take these records from an earlier time and engage in a practice of either nostalgia to kind of reanimate and rethink and re-envision them kind of into their own practice and to expand perhaps the kinds of stories of AIDS that are being told. They do not see themselves necessarily fully reflected within uh, and expand those, but also kind of harness the kind of aesthetic, nostalgic attachment to these kinds of earlier activist aesthetics. Um, and we use them to bring renewed attention days now, right? Something that I think we still fundamentally need. And as you hint at, right, uh, and in work that you and I have done together, Kate, that kind of story of virus and virality is one that's playing out here. And I think, right, that's one that gets neglected when we think about notions of kind of histories of the internet, histories of computing, histories of digital technologies, right? We often don't think about queer people, about people with HIV, about these other kinds of actors. And I think this project is also fundamentally part of those kinds of larger efforts to do a digital studies that recenters um, people who've not always been seen as kind of active actors in mediating technology and making technology. What I love about this talk of the digital is it is um, exciting and confronting for me to think about in relationship to, you know, one of the most important things within the work of HIV is to make sure that people understand that the virus is a material reality that lives in some people's body and not in others. And there's material reasons for that difference. And I think one thing that the book explores are this idea of the material realities of archives and, and how those material realities map alongside the material realities of the communities impacted by HIV, and then what happens when they intersect, not with the medical establishment, but with maybe the library establishment or the university establishment. And then to bring in the digital, then what happens when access changes again, and people can feel a kind of ownership or connection to HIV that is, one could argue, somewhat more devoid of material, even though I know people would push back against that. But what happens when the further HIV gets away from the material, the scarier it is for somebody like me, who even though I'm HIV negative, am deeply committed to making sure that we remember that it's a virus. Maybe it's really interesting to start to circle back and think about how does vital nostalgia play in maintaining some notion of the physical, right? Because nostalgia is often spoken about as that song you used to love or that feeling that you have. But I think, and maybe this is the question, is there a sense of the material to you when you're talking about vital nostalgia? Yeah, I think to our earlier conversation about bodies, right? I'm hoping we're paying attention in thinking about nostalgia to human bodies, but also bodies of records, the kinds of material, right? And I wander, of course, right, to kind of Ted's point, also, right, the digital is material, we're just not used to thinking about it, or it's material, we have a harder time envisioning, right? Um, we don't always get to see the, you know, pipes that uh, are running the internet we're on now, right? Um, but paying attention to nostalgia, I hope, has us thinking always about materiality and its importance. And I think that these artists are all navigating that in different ways. They're thinking fundamentally, even if they're doing digital work, about its kind of materiality. One of the artists um, I write about in that chapter, right, Kia Beja, in her piece, her video piece, Goodnight Kia, right, is navigating this 90s uh, home video footage and thinking about new footage she's creating in these, like, new and much fancier kinds of digital technologies, right, and showing material difference. Thinking about earlier video technologies, right, exposes 
the kinds of ones that we're perhaps not used to thinking about the kind of contemporary video technologies that are also at play here. And I think each of these artists in their own ways, right, is navigating kind of questions about materiality in their negotiations of digital platforms and in the way their work circulates, right? Even Dini and Dimiazzi's work, right? Most of it circulates uh, in these instances digitally, right? Through platforms like Tumblr, but also tells you that you can download these high-res posters, right? And paste them again. Projects like Poster Virus, which... Ian Bradley Perrin and Vincent Chevalier's work mostly circulates digitally, but again, also circulates in kind of physical posters in space. And so I think a lot of this work fundamentally and kind of exclusively navigates that tension and perhaps draws our attention to the kind of materiality of the digital as well. So for me, one of the things that this sets up really nicely, and I think the arc of your book works really well in that regard, is that the last section of your book, the epilogue, brings in COVID-19 and really faces that head on. You really try to hit home on the point that HIV AIDS is not over. (laughs) It's not a pandemic of the past, um, which of course is central to the ways that you talk about nostalgia throughout the book. But when you begin talking about COVID-19 in the epilogue, it really, for me, animated so much of what this book can offer us as readers in this particular moment. Though I'm sure when you were initially reading and researching this book, that was not even on the distant horizon. So I'm curious if you might just talk a bit more about how doing this work and undertaking this study, having this long form space to think about uh, vital nostalgia helps you to um, approach COVID-19 and sort of sets a a different kind of of context for the relationship between one pandemic and another. Thank you for that um, question, KJ. I think, yes, as you point to, right, Fundamentally, like I debated whether I think as everybody writing a book in this moment, right, like do you address, especially a book, right, that had in some way has a relationship to the COVID-19 pandemic, right, do you address it or do you kind of leave it alone? Are you going to be outdated before, right, uh, it even makes it through? And all thinking about COVID-19, there's both this kind of proliferation of scholarship and like we're also in this kind of like we're still in this early moment, right? How this pandemic will be temporalized is like, I think, emerging, but still an open question. I thought originally that what the fifth chapter would be the conclusion, right, that I would kind of circle around to kind of artistic engagements with the digital, but I think with some very smart readers' feedback, it became clear that that was not a conclusion as much as a kind of chapter in and of itself. And for me, it was fundamentally important that the book, in thinking about AIDS as an ongoing crisis, and really as Alex Yuha's and Jifei Chang and others, right, have written about, right, it's really multiple crises happening all at once, right? There are multiple AIDS pandemics happening because We fundamentally have such different experiences and relationships and investments in AIDS that we're really living multiple AIDS pandemics at once, and we're certainly living multiple COVID-19 pandemics at once. I was very invested in the book not having a trajectory that ended with thinking about notions of cure. But that the kind of arc of the book itself is part of the kind of argument for the ongoing investment of paying attention to AIDS as present and future as much as past. That's part of my larger kind of arc of investment, too, in thinking about the kind of importance of archives, not as past-leaning, but as present and future driven as well. And so it kind of became impossible, especially as I was beginning to think about what the conclusion should be. And it was early in the pandemic, especially, and I know Ted has thought about this as well and written about this, but there was kind of, I think, in hopes of explaining what was happening and trying to navigate something that felt new that there was this kind of return to 
thinking about AIDS in this kind of comparative fashion to COVID-19 or this kind of like, oh, look, AIDS is like this pandemic that we managed thanks to all these like great activist efforts to kind of overcome, right? Uh, and that maybe seems defanged or less scary, at least in the North American context. And so I think there was all these narratives that seemed to be oversimplifying it. And for me, it was also an interesting kind of archival story, right? Because I don't think that there was beyond kind of people who were deeply invested in documenting their own work and the work and lives of their loved ones, right? As activists, I don't think there was this same kind of like rush to document things in real time as they unfolded. And I think some of that is about a story, again, about technology and digital technologies and our larger shift in the archival world to thinking about documenting things as they happen and unfold. But like there was this rush of big institutions. Everybody started the COVID project between March and May of 2020. And Lots of those projects in their own kind of temporal thing have stopped, big, but the pandemic hasn't stopped. And so I'm also interested in these kinds of projects of memory making as they happen. And so it became impossible not to talk about COVID and AIDS in conversation with one another because they are being put in conversation by journalists and by scholars and by popular commentators and by AIDS activists and thinkers in this early moment, but also by archives, right? There's these interesting projects, including one I know Ted played a crucial role in, right? The kind of generation of a zine and an exhibition, right? Of the one archives that navigate this kind of tension in interesting and productive ways. Thinking about vital nostalgia here became fundamentally important because how we do COVID memory making, how we put these two kind of pandemics in conversation is fundamentally important. And I think there's there are interesting questions for me too about the temporalization of COVID, right? Will COVID kind of go through its own shift from like epidemic to endemic time? Uh, are we already doing that, right? What does it mean for us to live in these multiple pandemics at once? And how do we actually use this kind of renewed attention to AIDS in a powerful way? if anything good can come from another like horrifying pandemic, can we actually use that to draw attention to the structural realities that undergird both these crises? To build off that, I agree. I think of archival practice as an activist practice, as a, many different practices, but also at obviously memorialization and something that a lot of us think about is memorialization is not just naming the people who have died, but it's also naming the practices and the tactics that they use to survive and thrive and even die with dignity. And it's interesting to think about, you know, pandemic as archive and how is the past going to help us in the present and the future. And that is actually how we show love and respect for the people who died prematurely. So to me, that also adds another layer to this word vital under vital nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, that's my hope is that people take this book and this kind of moment where we're sitting very obviously in multiple pandemics and give the attention we need to thinking critically about how we do memory making and activism and archiving right in this particular moment and of these particular crises, but also within contextualizing them within these kind of long histories and narratives, right? As I think Ted, your work and Kate's work as well, right? Place AIDS, right? Within these kind of much longer uh, trajectories, right? And if we kind of can take some lesson, right, from AIDS archiving is to place COVID-19 in these same kind of long structures and these to pay attention to kind of its, I hesitate to, I mean, aftermath in its kind of most critical sense, right? It's kind of ongoing uh, implications. And I hope that we'll do that kind of memory making here as well. And I think I'm deeply indebted to the ways in which some of my other collaborators, uh, Tanya Sutherland and Anna Lauren Hoffman and Megan Finn, and I have a kind of very a lab in the least formal uh, sense. And right, our project there is thinking about kind of long 
stories of crises, right? Like what happens as they unfold? What happens in the wake of kind of disaster? And I think that's where I hope to leave us in this book is where are we at in these kind of conjunctures of pandemics and where might we go from here? Um, and how might we document and make accessible and do kind of archival work and curatorial work and thinking differently. Thank you all for uh, all of your thoughtful questions and responses and comments. I am so touched that three of you agreed to do this and I really appreciate all your work on this as well, Maggie. Thank you for listening. Viral Cultures is available from your local bookseller and wherever books are sold.